Hello, it's 11th of November 2016, and this is episode 6 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis, and commentary. We're focused on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. So, Kirsty, how's your week in Star Wars been? Uh, it's been good. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just talking before we started recording about the Marvel comic for The Force Awakens. <laughs> we got another funny gem. Yes. Um, <laughs> would you like to describe said gem, Kirsty? Well, it, it's, um, it's issue six, right? Yes, the final issue. Yeah, so it's the fight in the forest that we were focusing on. And it's it's just really funny, the whole thing. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny. I don't know if the writers and artists are kind of colluding to <laughs> have an in, unintentionally comedic issue, but I don't know. Some of the the noises they have them making and the expressions and some of the weird blocking of the characters, like the one I'm talking about is when she's she's struck Kylo down and he's lying on the, in the snarl and her legs are like apart and he's positioned in between them <laughs> and it's just a little strange this will sound like we're being pervs but this is literally what happens in the comic we this is a completely straight description of what the panel looks like yeah. so there's no protection involved it's literally what is there <laughs> exactly that's exactly what is actually there in the panel um i don't know if that's what they're going for in terms of innuendo uh, I can't help but think that they just went, oh, sod it. Let's just go all out. <laughs> it's a bit, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. <laughs> it's the kind of panel where you look at it and think, someone has a fetish. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was literally what I thought. It's like, seriously, man. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe the artist ships it. Raylo shippers and unlikely places. <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, because that's actually a trope, right? If you look at you know famous movie posters and that, mm. have, having the woman's disembodied legs there, which I think is kind of gross. <laughs> yes, but the, it actually reminded me of um, Have you seen Father Ted? Yes. Um, there's one scene in Father Ted where um, Father Ted and his his young fellow priest, who's our uh, father Dougal, I think maybe. Um, it's been a long time since I watched it. But they're on tucked up in bed and they're about to go to sleep. And then this priest they have visiting them, he like strides into the room and he's cl- wear- only wearing his underpants. <laughs> and he basically, there's a shot of him filmed exactly in the same way as this panel from the Force Awakens comic. Like, so filmed like from behind his legs with like Ted framed in between them. <laughs> <laughs> and that was what I was thinking of when I was looking at this comic and it was just insane so thank you Marvel Comics for giving us that beautiful yeah. piece of art it's truly one for the ages we've said before that the art itself is a bit suspect but mm. there have been some great moments <laughs> yes no, exactly um, and to calm us down a minute on a slightly more interesting note there is one panel so after Ray has felt the force and got in tune with it, there's a panel that shows her with like the glowing amber eyes, which are typically associated with the dark side. Uh, I think you mentioned it could be like they could explain it away as a quirk of the lighting or something like that. But it does look a hell of a lot like Anakin's eyes in Revenge of the Sith, for example, when they're very clearly visually signposting he has gone bad. 
And yeah, I, I just found it an interesting choice. Like, I don't know if it's artists gone wild, which, which is very possible given the discussion we've just had, or if there is actually some kind of word from above to convey that Ray was touching the dark side in that moment. Yeah, because we've said before that the novelization hints at that much more explicitly than the film itself does, even though you can see in the film that Ray gets really angry and vicious. Yes. It's kind of a, a more explicit hint. But I mean, are these comics canon? <laughs> They can't be right. I hope they are. Well, <laughs> I guess they are in that they they're just using the exact same dialogue as the movie. Yeah, but... it, it, like they're they're almost identical in like all respects, apart from like these small things, like the shot with Ray's eyes. So oh, it's so hard. Pablo would probably say no. I'm sure Pablo just hates the whole thing. So it just makes his life even more complicated and annoying. Because yeah. people can come to him and say, Pablo, in issue six of the Marvel adaption of The Force Awakens, Ray has Sith eyes. What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I bet he'd be like, oh, just sod off. Yeah. But he didn't he answer a question recently about um, whether Ray was tapping into the dark side or not? I, I think he said something like, um, well, does it look like she's becoming stronger and... I can't remember the exact phrasing. Yeah, I, I, I think I... Because it does. Be, yeah, no, it, it definitely looks like she becomes stronger as a result of tapping into that. Yeah, I, I definitely think they're going to be going playing with that in episode eight, which I think is why he's been so coy, because it's like future content, but at the same time, he wants to play with us, because yeah. that's what Pablo does. It's future content, but at the same time, is it a huge twist as she gets tempted by the dark? Because that seems, that's a universal theme within Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. It's always going to happen. Yeah. Um, right. Are we ready to move into news? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, yesterday essentially decided our lead story for us because we had a new Rogue One international trailer come out. And then today there's basically been a very quick succession of like three or four new trailers and TV spots. Um, so it's very quickly become very hard to distinguish between them and to keep track of them all. I think we're probably going to mainly focus on the international trailer that came out yesterday, um, which I believe was Japanese, because it is the one that has the most new content and essentially gives us the juiciest stuff to talk about. Um, so, Kirsty, have you seen these myriad trailers? Well, I've definitely seen the international one, mm -hmm. and I did see another one that you sent me, but I don't think I've seen all of them. <laughs> I think I've lost track of how many there are. I did send you lots of links. <laughs> yeah, because there are TV spots as well, aren't they? They're not quite trailers. They're more like little... I don't even know how to describe them, but... Yeah, they're like 30-second micro-trailers, like yeah. just for like ad slots on TV. So, But the, the most interesting part of the international trailer, and I'm sure you agree, is that we finally get to see Jin's mum, Lyra Erso. Yes! Seriously, I, I feel so bad because I was all like doom and gloom. I was like, oh, she's going to die when Jin's four. We're never going to see her like other than for like 10 seconds. Blah, blah, blah. And yet here she is and she speaks. And she gives Jen a pendant and she appears to believe in the force. So mind blown. I was like, wow, she's an actual character who actually does stuff. She'll probably be killed in the next scene. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I have to give them more credit than I did initially. So I apologize, Lucasfilm. You're not quite as into frigid mums as I thought you were. So yeah. thumbs up. I mean, it's better than we expected. But that yes. was not saying much. Because <laughs> um, obviously she's just not going to be a major character. This is the only time we've seen her in anything promotional. 
Um, yes. And there have been tons of posters and tons of trailers at this point. And, and this is the international one. It's not even a US or British one. So yeah. I was genuinely shocked to see her, though. Yeah, same. I didn't see her in any promotional materials. I was like, wow. I do think it, it's very interesting that she gave Jin the uh, kyber crystal, or what I'm assuming is a kyber crystal necklace. Yes. No, I think it has to be a kyber crystal, um, because otherwise it's just a pretty crystal stone. <laughs> Like, maybe she's actually like a secret princess and she can like summon a unicorn friend to save the day with her by touching the pendant. <laughs> and that's probably some like, 80s cartoon I saw when I was a child. But yeah, um, I'm pretty sure there has to be a kyber crystal um, because process of elimination. Um, and I also read on Reddit that it has force carved into it in Arabish oh, because really? people on Reddit are nerds and that can be useful. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because Lyra, when she's handing in that pendant, she says, trust the Force. Um, so we have to assume that Lyra like, believes in the Force and places great importance on it herself. Um, like Because she's obviously telling Jin to put her faith in that. Um, and I, I found that quite an interesting concept because obviously we know that Jin's father's a scientist... So I kind of wonder if they're going to have this marriage where the mother is the more like mystical, spiritual person, and then the father is like more the scientist, like into the facts of the situation rather than like the mysticism. Yeah, I feel like that's becoming a common theme of conflict with Star Wars because mm. um, we have Kylo and Hux, who are obviously set up to have that kind of technocrat, spiritualist conflict. Yes, within the First Order. And then also that's been kind of hinted at between Vader and Krennic as well. Yes, definitely. Um, so yeah, and I think it's an interesting contrast to see, especially in that kind of relationship, because I, I don't think we're going to be getting into the domestic dramas of the Urso family. <laughs> so <laughs> presumably they get along to some degree because, yeah, it's not going to be a film about the marital strife between Lyra and Galen Urso. <laughs> And I'd quite like to see that. I'd like to see the two sides, so like the science and the mysticism, working alongside each other rather than clashing, because yeah. that's what we've traditionally seen. We've seen those two sides and how they just can't get along because they're incompatible. So it'd be nice to see a blend of them. Yeah, maybe those those two conflicting ideas come together in Jin and how she views the world. Yeah, she has those influences from each of her parents. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that, and I think they've made a big point of like how the Jedi and belief in the Force have essentially faded by the time Jin is a grown woman, which is why there's the, this like cynical edge to her. And I think that is a nice way of making that personal by having Jin's mother be this person who's a real, really devout believer in the Force and tells her child to believe in it too. Because I reckon they're likely to do some kind of thing with Jin where she's lost her faith in the Force because she's just had such a rough time. And she's been on her own for so long and feels so rejected and abandoned by everything that she no longer has faith. But then over the course of the film, she has to rediscover that faith and find that hope in order to fight and to achieve the goal. Yeah, I think that makes sense based on um, how she seems to be coming across in the trailers. Because we were saying some of her lines are quite bitter and cynical and probably more reflective of how it seems to be that she's been growing up by herself. Yes. Um, but then there are these very inspirational, optimistic moments. And she says things like, may the force be with you. So maybe yes. that is her arc across the story, like you say. Yeah. Have you noticed actually with that line, may the force be with you? I think she said that 
like there must be like six different takes of that line across all the different trailers. Oh, really? Yeah, I can swear every time that line has been included, it's been a different take. I did not notice that. I need to go back and watch them. <laughs> I, I doubt the vast majority of people will. I Like, I'm just a nerd for things like that. And it's, it's almost like just there's a completely different quality to her voice each time. So I do wonder what the hell's going on in the editing room. It's like, make up your minds. <laughs> like, these yeah. are very different takes. So you need to, like, decide on which one actually suits your film. Right, because, you know, with all this talk of the reshoots and things, I hope that it's not going to mess with her character too much, that it she does make sense as a person. Even though she's going on a journey and she's not going to be static, yes. but that it still has this consistency and they seem to have decided what kind of character she is. Yeah, no, exactly. There has to be like an internal logic to her and it needs to make sense that she's suddenly spouting, the rebellions are built on hope. (laughs) (laughs) Like she just can't spontaneously become happy and optimistic. So I really hope that's organic and like it's shown to come from like a place that's genuinely deeply rooted inside her and like her background. And I, I think showing that to be a manifestation of her mother and her mother's beliefs and her mother's spirit I think that would be a nice way to do that. And it would also be a nice way to show like a mother character being more than just someone who dies to give other people pain. It would be a nice way to show the mother actually inspiring her child and having a lasting influence on her child. Because yeah. I don't think we've had that. I hope we get that. Like you say, we we were worried a while back that Lyra was just going to die and then that would be it. Like Jin might not even remember her mother or yes. have that connection. But if it is like her living on through her daughter... Yeah. That could be quite profound. Yeah, no, definitely. I'd almost prefer to see Jin as Lyra Urso's daughter than Jin as Galen Urso's daughter. Obviously, she's the daughter of both of them. But as we've discussed at length before, Star Wars is really stuck on its daddy issues. It needs to get over it. And it'd be a good way to do that by having Lyra be this formative influence in Jin's life. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see because it's coming up pretty soon. Yeah, exactly. It's not long left. Right. Uh, We had a nice shot of Vader in this trailer. It was probably the clearest we've had of him yet. He was like doing the whole like hand clenching motion. (laughs) I've seen some people suggest that he's just finished choking someone, which is very charming, of course. Very Vader-ish. Yeah, we've been told that he's going to be quite vicious and pretty badass Vader in this one, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Which I think is probably a good move because they really need that familiar point of reference for people with this movie because so many people are confused and it's going to be that way right up until the movie so they really really need to drum this home this is Darth Vader this is not (laughs) Kylo Ren dressed as Darth Vader this is not a hologram of Darth Vader this is Darth Vader because this film is set in the past (laughs) I did feel like they were being quite heavy-handed you like with the lines like you say the um rebellions are built on hope (laughs) it's like okay this is a prequel to a new hope yeah can we make that any more obvious (laughs) yeah i think the international trailer is also the first one where they literally say death star and they keep saying rogue one as well (laughs) yeah it's like seriously stop it (laughs) i think they even said rogue one twice in one of the new tv spots it's like you do not need to say rogue one twice no it is rogue one not episode eight okay yeah so you're all aware oh yeah and that reminds me i'm not sure if you saw this one but one of the (laughs) clips in i think one of the new tv spots it literally has Jin say welcome to rogue one (laughs) (laughs) i know it was so bad i was like no how many, I wonder how many times they're going to have Rogue One said in this movie. <laughs> and that's really weird to me because I don't think that's going to be the best point of identification for casual fans about what this movie is. 
Because I like Rogue One is a cool sign used in A New Hope. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's really bad. I should just be confident of that information. I just don't really get why a movie would have to reference its own title so many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's not like Rogue One itself is immensely iconic. Like it is kind of iconic, I guess. But it's not that great a frame of reference. I'd definitely be doing more to big up Death Star or big up Vader than I would to be picking up Rogue One. It's like we know the movie is called Rogue One. You have a yeah. big ass title screen with the words Rogue One on it. And also the things about like including lots of shots of the Death Star, which you know it always looks amazing and beautiful. Yes, but we had Starkiller Base in Episode Seven, so it's not even like that is going to be the thing that really makes people understand where this is. It's almost like as JJ said in his commentary, that having a Death Star or a Starkiller base is like a prerequisite for a Star Wars film at this point. Yes. So it's not even like it's unique. Yeah, no, it, like that could come from any time and any era at this point. <laughs> for a casual fan, you know. Yeah, no, exactly. We know that it's the Death Star. Yeah, how, how do we feel this compared to the other trailers? Like the international one, did you like it more, like it less? Were you just completely meh? Um, I've liked aspects of all of them. Mm. Um, I don't think there's one I can easily pick out as my favourite. I was just so pleased to see Lyra in this one that, that maybe that makes it my favourite for now. <laughs> yes. No, that that was essentially my main takeaway. The, by far the most interesting element of this is seeing Jin's mum. Because yeah. that's a, a genuinely fresh and new element of this film that we have not seen anywhere else. There's literally no trace of it. So I really appreciated seeing that. Yeah, I really like that actress. Um, I don't know if you've seen The Fall on the BBC. I haven't seen The Fall, but I did see her in a few other things. I saw her in 13. Unfortunately, in 13, she played an awful character who I hated and wanted to die. <laughs> but that's not because of the actress. It's because the character was really badly written. So I right. know she's a good actress. I, I have yeah. seen her in something else, but I can't remember it right now. What was she like in The Fall? Oh, she's great. I mean, she doesn't have a huge part, but she she really sells the role. It's very emotional. Yeah, I'm just interested to see how much screen time she's actually going to end up having. Yeah. I thought it was going to be really, you know, the bare minimum, but I'm hoping that this means there's, there's something more to their relationship that is not just, like you say, her being used as a as a plot device almost. And I think it's also worth saying that there's been rumblings about there being a Force sensitive in Catalyst, which is the Rogue One prequel novel that's coming out um, to set up the characters and scenarios of the film, essentially. And it's basically been speculated that the Force Sensitive of Rogue One might actually be Lyra Erso. And I definitely think this new trailer gave that some significant support because she's clearly quite a devout believer in the Force, if nothing else. That doesn't necessarily mean she has the Force, but I, I certainly think it seems much more plausible now than it did a week ago, at which point... I would never in a million years have guessed that Lyra Erso might be force sensitive. I was wondering, um, because I, I I don't think I didn't think it'd be Galen and I didn't think it would be Krennic. And I, some people were like, oh, of course it's gonna be Vader. But I don't even know if Vader's gonna be in Catalyst, because isn't it focusing on Jin's family? Yeah, I, I don't think Vader will be in there. Uh, I as far as I'm aware, Catalyst at least it starts before Darth Vader is even a thing. It starts right. when he's still Anakin. So yeah, it's kind of before the whole Vader thing went down so to speak yeah that is interesting actually because then she's she's if it, if it is her she's force sensitive but the jedi is still around yes like i suppose that's an interesting question really isn't it it's like what happened to force sensitives if they didn't actually become jedi 
Because there must be plenty of Force-sensitive people who didn't become Jedi. I don't believe that they all went to the Jedi Temple and learned as younglings and then became Jedi Knights and then went off on missions, blah, blah, blah. And this might well be explored in the Clone Wars. Well, I think they're in kind of introducing this concept in the new canon, like with the idea of someone like Maz, who's Force-sensitive, and Ahsoka as well, who turns away. Yes. And it's, that's something that's in the Clone Wars as well, but we've had that explored a bit more with Rebels mm. and um, the new book for Ahsoka. So, yeah, maybe it's possible that she's just Force-sensitive, but chose not to become a Jedi for whatever reason. I know that the, the Emperor and Anakin wanted to destroy all the Jedi, but could you destroy all of the Force sensitive? Because <laughs> then we also have Rebels and Ezra and Kanan are they're Force sensitives, you know, they're yeah. training to be Jedi. Um I do wonder if perhaps Lyra is like Force sensitive and that she can sense the Force and she's really conscious and aware of it, but she's not actually a Force user, so she can't like take active control of it. So in, in mm. the sense that she's almost like Leia. Because Leia's essentially in that position because she's really attuned to the Force and she can sense when things are happening. But because she was never trained, she can't actually do like Jedi mind tricks and stuff. Yeah. So I do wonder if Lyra's in that kind of position. Yeah, I like that idea of different levels of strength um, connected to the Force. Yeah. And I think that's also quite realistic because you can have an innate skill, but if you never learn to harness it, then it's not like you can ever really use it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, right, have you said all we want to say about that? Yeah, I think so. Okay, awesome. Then we can move on to the next story, which is that there's a rumour about Rogue One ticket sales going on general release at the end of November. And this is a bit tenuous. It's from Star Wars Newsnet. And they basically found a tweet where someone said that a Swiss cinema is reporting that they're going to be putting Rogue One tickets for sale at the end of November. That may well not come to anything, or it might just be for this particular cinema. But it is still word, and that's significant because it's been mysteriously silent on this Yeah, I was really expecting to have heard something by now. Because when did the tickets go on sale for The Force Awakens? Can you remember? (sighs) I I think it might have even been October. Yeah, I think so. Like, it was definitely before now. They were 100% on sale now because I remember booking my tickets, like, on day one, I think. Mainly because I wanted to go and see it at venues that sell out very quickly, so like the IMAX in London, um, because that was sold out for months. It was insane. We wanted to go to a very specific cinema, so we went and queued downtown in the rain. Oh, so wow. Was worth it. <laughs> That's devoted. I, I didn't do any of that. I, I did it all from the comfort of my um home and my laptop. But yeah, it strikes me as funny that there's been no word on tickets yet. Um, to me, it kind of signals that they really don't think the demand's going to be on the level of The Force Awakens, which is natural. It never was going to be. But it is kind of like, come on, guys, move it. You need to indicate that you have faith in your own movie, you know? I, I expected them to to be out now, or at least to have heard something, like get an email from cinema saying that this is, you, this is when you can expect to be able to buy them. Yeah. It seems a bit badly organised. Um, but I think all of this stuff is fallout from production hell with Rogue One, I expect, to certain degrees. Um, so I think the whole like marketing thing is a bit of a mess. So I think under any other circumstances, they probably would have put this film back a few months because they were making very big changes very late, like reshooting a significant portion of the film and hiring a completely new composer. Those are changes that really should put your film back. But 
is very very important that Rogue One comes out in the slot it does for many yeah. reasons they they just can't move it so they're clearly moving heaven and earth to get it there but I think stuff like the marketing campaign and the tickets going on release has all been reshuffled and is in a bit of a mess because of that yeah I was still surprised like the the, the composing is going on so late in the game yes like Michael G. Kino just he he can't be getting any sleep and it's ridiculous so I, I was looking it up and I think he composes like four feature film scores a year anyway so mm. this is a busy busy man and then he's taken on Rogue One at the last minute with such a short time frame and it's just going to take a superhuman effort to pull it off I think but he's very talented so I think he will yeah I, I think it'll be great but It'd be interesting. Will it be a masterpiece? I don't know. And it's a lot of pressure because it's obviously the first Star Wars film that's not composed by John Williams. Yeah. No, exactly. There's lots riding on this movie. I, I kind of feel sorry for it because it almost has more responsibility than it should have. Because yeah. it's like at the forefront of this new wave of Star Wars movies. And it needs to do it well in order to convince people that this is something that can work and something that can be viable for years to come. I think it. I think it'll be a good film. I'm just not sure it's going to be a masterpiece. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be very solid. And essentially, that's all it needs to be. So as long as it's a good movie, it makes a decent amount of money, and it isn't critically trashed, like I think then we'll be good. Yeah. Um, Are you planning to pre-book your Rogue One tickets, Kirsty? Yeah, I will. <laughs> Definitely going to do that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's nice, just for peace of mind, then you know the tickets are there, and it's nice and relaxed. Um, I'm going to make sure I go over a friend this time because last year I'd just moved to a new place and I went on my lonesome, which is sad. <laughs> um, I, it, just, it doesn't bother me at all. I actually really enjoy going to the cinema on my own. Yeah, same. I'll probably go for repeat viewings by myself. Yeah, I, in a way, I find it actually helps me focus more on the film because you oh yeah you don't need to care about the social element so much. The first time I went to see The Force Awakens, we went in this huge group of people because obviously everyone was really excited to see it. Yeah. Um, but someone brought their girlfriend and she'd never seen a Star Wars movie. Oh no! And the whole way through, she was asking questions like, "Who's that? What's that?" Oh, and she really loved BB-8, but she every time he came on screen, she like squealed because he was so cute, and we were all just like. <laughs> please shut up oh god that would yeah. drive me mad <laughs> yeah i think she's seen them all since then so if she's coming this time maybe she'll be a bit calmer <laughs> yeah like it sounds like she almost had like od'd on star wars on that occasion. yeah so you know it's nice in a way because obviously she was really excited but it's like she's find another forum for your excitement <laughs> yeah you can't ask questions during the first viewing for people yeah no i'd find that really obnoxious Ooh. and I, I sound really bad <laughs> No, there's just certain things you do when you're watching a film, don't you? Like, yeah. Just... I consider like the cinema like my church. So if <laughs> anyone like disrespects it and disrespects the sanctity of the cinema screen, then I will rage. <laughs> I was like, be quiet! Yeah, that's part of the rules. You've got to be quiet. You've got to turn your phone off. Yeah. Just respect the, the members of the audience. So they have those helpful little screeners even reminding you to do that. Exactly. So there's no excuse. Yeah, and I'll be pre-booking my tickets as well. So looking forward to it. Yeah, I like to do that for lots of films anyway. Just, I mean, um, it depends on the place, but then you can, you know, reserve your seat and just have peace of mind that you're going to get there and it's not going to be sold out because that's really annoying. Yeah, no, definitely. I generally don't go to films that are popular enough to warrant pre-booking. <laughs> um, but I will if it's a big film. 
where I think there is the risk of me not having a seat. Um, right, are we ready to move on to the next item? Yeah. Okay, cool. So this is going to be our final Rogue One news item. And we basically have an assortment of things. And we start off with some banners. <laughs> They're not great. They were Basically, they return to the stormtroopers in the sea theme. Yeah, they really like that, don't they? They really do. Yeah, it's like it's their favourite thing. Bless. <laughs> um, and to be fair, though, I think the stormtroopers in the sea one, I think that's pretty cool. That That looks good. The worst one is the rebels in the sea. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's so, so awful. Donnie Yen and the other guy, I, I'm really sorry, I can't remember his name. They are just so badly photoshopped into that banner. It's obscenely bad. It is, it's just embarrassing. Like, Donnie Yen is, like, staring at the camera, like, what? <laughs> and it's like, you're meant to be running on a desperate life-or-death mission. You should not have that expression on your face. Yeah, but this stuff, again, I'm wondering if it's a symptom of having to really rush this stuff. Yeah. The marketing, because, I mean, it's not that hard. Yeah, I've worked with um, visual designers and UX designers, and it's... Obviously, it takes skill, yeah. but with a bit of time, you can put something together fairly easily. Yeah, no, and and you can hopefully also find stills of the actors where they all at least have the same eye lines. Because <laughs> in in this one, right, you have Felicity, Diego Luna, and Rez Ahmed. All of them like have the same like approximately correct eye line. They're all looking ahead. And then the other two guys, like Donnie Yen is like, looking at the camera, as I said. He's like, what? <laughs> and then the other guy's just like looking faintly off into the middle distance, like he's just kind of peeved about life. And yeah, it's just really bad. Yeah, but probably just expecting people to have a quick glance at it and not think about <laughs> it too much. But we like to take everything apart and criticize yeah. it all. They, they don't dare <laughs> to imagine that assholes like us actually <laughs> sit here and dissect it in painful detail. I hope we don't come across as too mean. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry, designers. I know you try. I, I know you really try. It's, think of this constructive criticism. So next time, find a picture where Donnie Yen is running and looking ahead of himself. Like, or, yeah. or ask him to put in that pose. So, see, there you go. Then it's fine because we're still being a bit mean, but we're giving them suggestions so they know. Constructive. Do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can go back and do better next time. <laughs> so it impressed those two snooty bitches on the podcast. <laughs> yes. Right. Then the next thing we have is a bunch of behind-the-scenes photos uh, from Rogue One. Have you seen these, Kirsty? Yeah, I have. They're pretty cool to see. Yeah, no, they are. I like behind-the-scenes photos more than official stills generally, just because they add more colour to proceedings. I find like the ones that stick out to me. You have a really cool one of Warwick Davis. Um, and he's just chilling and he's clearly playing like an alien dude and you actually see this alien dude in one of the TV spots and he's like firing his gun and it's really cool because uh, we determined that Warwick Davis was this alien dude firing the gun and it's like Warwick's getting to do something woo because yeah. <laughs> in Force Awakens he was in there but he didn't like do anything really he was literally in, in shot for a second and I think he turned around when Han and everyone entered as yeah. the sum of Warwick Davis's part. But here, at least, he gets to fire a gun and look badass. Is he just going to be in every Star Wars movie from oh, now I hope on? So. He's still like, pretty young. like Because, obviously, he was 12, I think, when he was in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And, yeah, he's only like in his 40s. 
So I think they can keep him around for a long time. I'd like to see yeah. Warwick Davis in Star Wars Episode Twenty, <laughs> and like maybe even with his own face, that'd be legendary. It would. Like, yeah, don't have him play an alien every time. Yeah, no, exactly. Warwick Davis is a really cool actor. Right then, we other behind the scenes shots. We have guy in the black armor. I think they're called Death Troopers, and he's mm-hmm. a little stormtrooper doll. Um, so I'm guessing he's there to hunt for Jin. Either that or he's just a memorabilia collector who is action figure along for the ride. Probably the former. Yeah, well, I would imagine. It'd be a bit of a strange tangent for Rogue One to go. <laughs> um, and then there's another really cool one and it looks like they're filming people in a spaceship and then they've got this massive like back projection of a star field and it's really, really cool. I think they talked about this and it was basically the idea of them having live special effects that the actors could respond to. So whereas normally the actors would just have a big green screen in front of them, they'd have to imagine that they were traveling through the stars. Now, because of this new rig, they have like the actual scene projected in front of them. So they can see what the characters are meant to be seeing in the moment. Yeah, I really like that. And I think it must be immensely helpful for the actors. Oh yeah, it must make it so much easier. Green screen must be really difficult. Yeah, and you, you often hear actors talking about trying to act alongside like tennis balls attached to long <laughs> poles <laughs> and saying how horrible it is. Um, so, yeah, I'm really pleased for their sake that they're going to these lengths in order to try and make it more immersive and real during the production. Mm-hmm. I think it's really yeah. cool. And then we have just... <sighs> the other ones are more like generic action-y shots. There's a cool one of Donnie Yen doing the whole blind thing. Look, looking cool and blind. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> you sound so mean. Cool and blind. <laughs> yeah, I'm massively articulate today, as you can tell. Um, and then there's another really cool shot of them filming on the famous beach with the helicopter overhead. And I'm going to sound really cynical, but I always sound really cynical. I bet you part of the motive behind filming on an island paradise was that looks awesome. That's oh, I think so. On the island paradise. Yeah, I think that's what's going on. A lot of it, I mean, it does look beautiful, but a lot of it is very about about the visuals. It seems like, you know. Yeah. But it's like, oh, that looks cool. Yeah. That seems to be what people take away from the trailers. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah, so I have noticed that they seem to be using much more spectacular landscapes. Yeah. I guess Rogue One than they did for Force Awakens, because there's lots of natural environments in The Force Awakens. But they are much more modest. Like, no one, I think, would say, oh, let's go to Puzzlewood in Wales and film there. That would be badass. We can all like, have a holiday and go to Cardiff and it would be amazing. No one would say that. Whereas... Mm. It... <laughs> I thought it was cool that they... Um, was it the Forest of Dean that they did a lot of the Takodana stuff in? Yes, which is Puzzlewood. Yeah, which is beautiful. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I think Puzzlewood is part of the Forest of Dean. Oh, okay. I actually live quite close to there, or did live. Um, I need to try and persuade someone to give me a lift there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's beautiful. Yeah. Like, I, I think that was a good choice for them to, to... And they you know, and they had the Lake District when you first come into Takodana and see all the lakes there. Yes, so. no, that's beautiful. Um, and I know they did plate work in Iceland, but I don't think they actually took any of the actors there. It was just mm. background shots. Yeah. So lucky, lucky film crew going to Iceland. Um, 
And then the final Rogue One thing we have is that there's an international poster. And this is famous, a bunch of people stuffed together, floating in a sky composition. Mm. And they're at a weird Dutch angle, which makes you feel a bit disorientated. Actually, mostly looking in the same direction, but Forrest Whitaker is looking completely the wrong direction, um, which kind of confuses me. I'm so so judgmental. Oh my goodness. What did you think of the poster, Kirsty? I do think it's a bit weird how they're all just kind of floating there (laughs) with only half of their bodies. (laughs) Yes. And again, you have Krennic as part of the rebel, which is a bit strange. Yeah. But again, it's probably just, yeah, we don't know how else to put him in the poster, so... He's like a growth coming out of something. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, Jin's so huge, so it's, like, Jin's this enormous giant. And then, like, all the... I know, it's like Snow White and Seven Dwarves. So, it like, is. Jin is Snow White, and then everyone else in her, like, merry band, they're, like, the dwarves, and they're all surrounded. Yeah. We said before it has that kind of Joan of Arc vibe as well, right? Like the Yes. Yeah, she's just one woman. Yeah, kind of there to be like the the voice of hope and hopefully more than that, but has <laughs> yeah, that vibe. Exactly. We just need to hope that she's not purely an inspirational dialogue machine. Because mm. that is a risk that I'm becoming increasingly concerned about the more promotional materials I see for this movie. Actually, in the international trailer, didn't they have that moment with her and Cassian that it was she was kind of talking about how she was used to people leaving and Yes, they did. I forgot to mention that. That was naughty of me. Um, yeah, she said, I'm not used to people sticking around when things go bad. It's mm. an interesting line. I think that might well indicate that her father kind of let her down or abandoned them in some ways, or she thinks he abandoned them. Um, because I think that could explain a lot of her anger and issues, and it would also help to add extra tension and drama to that scenario. Yeah because they're probably going to have a very emotional reunion and that reunion would be more emotional if there was bad feeling there. Yeah, and the way that scene is shot, it makes me wonder again if there is going to be something kind of hinted at in terms of romance between Jin and Cassian, even if it's super understated. Uh, It's almost like an obligation with these kinds of films to have a romance of some kind. And when you have people as attractive as Felicity Jones and Diego Luna, it it kind of seems like a sorry waste to not have allusions to that, at least. Yeah. Like I say, it might be kind of understated and never actually goes anywhere and they might not kiss or anything like that, but there is this kind of flirtatious undercurrent between them. Yeah, I can see that. I don't think we're going to get love story for the ages, but flirtation, absolutely. I think that's very likely. Right, have you said all we want to say about Rogue One? Yes. Okay, cool. Well, then we can move on to episode eight news. And we have some really thrilling stuff, guys. It's very exciting. But we want to say, spoiler alert. <laughs> Even <laughs> though it's like a, the smallest spoiler you can the imagine. Most but wild still. spoiler. <laughs> still. Yeah, if you're super sensitive, then skip ahead. <laughs> right. Okay, so this first one, it comes from Reddit, but hear me out. Okay, this spoiler is so small and so insignificant and who cares? I just do not believe anyone would bother to make it up. Exactly. So, it's something, you, what, what would be the point of making this up? <laughs> like, it doesn't mean anything right now. Yeah, so. exactly. It's just so bizarre and tiny that I'm pretty certain it has to be real. And there's also other good reasons to believe it is real that we will go into shortly. Um, and... What we have here is a Reddit user who posted the following. As part of my job, 
Back in summer, I processed a few forms for children to be taken out of school for the purposes of acting. Most were modelling shoots for clothing shops, a few extras for stuff like The Crown. Pretty cool, right? But I saw another one. Another for Space Bear. Well, one of the parts for an extra in the film is Stable Boy. I'm assuming that's foretending to whatever the style's equivalent of horses are. Or that or are the Tauntauns back. But it may just be a part requiring a child of exceptional balance or something. <laughs> um, so that's verbatim from this user, which is why it sounds a bit weird. So thank you, Reddit user, for this piece of information. What did you think when you saw this, Kirsty? Well, like I said, it's so tiny, perhaps not insignificant, but I think it has to be true. I don't see why anyone bother making this up. Um, but Stable Boy, as he said in the spoiler, um, obviously links us to the idea of horses. <laughs> and we already have that photo of um, Finn and Kelly Marie Tran's character on the back of that horse yes, in Dubrovnik. We do. I'd be very so. surprised if this Stable Boy has something to do with completely different horses. Right. There'd have to be a lot of horses in episode 8. Unless it's just a code name for the part as well. Yes, that's true. That's a good point. Is it really bad that when I heard this, I was thinking about the size of the horse that John and Kelly Marie Tran's character are on? And I was thinking, the Stable Boy, they have to like muck out the horses, don't they? Oh my god. <laughs> I was thinking, that horse is freaking <laughs> enormous. Like, does this poor stable boy, does he literally have to muck this creature out? Obviously, I know it's all pretend. I know it's all pretend. <laughs> but seriously, that's the worst job. And I know it's Star Wars. Maybe they have some weird technological innovation that means people don't have to do that. <sighs> You'd like to think so, but in some ways, it's really pretty primitive. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a rough job. Yeah, that'd be awful. I, I do wonder what... Like the function of the stable boy character is going to be. It almost makes you wonder if Finn and Kelly Marie Tran's character are going to steal the hall. That's what I wondered too. And then, you know, he like chases after them going, hey, bring them up. You do kind of like Uncarfoot did with the Falcon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Why bring back my horse? My boss is going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's so strange. Just the concept of having a stable boy in Star Wars it feels so wrong. Oh. It feels more like a period drama, which it then brings me back to the idea of the prequels because Ryan Johnson said before that he actually quite likes the prequels and mm. you know that's somehow considered controversial in some areas of the fandom, but maybe there are going to bring more elements of that in, whereas The Force Awakens was very much about paying homage to the original trilogy. Yeah, no, it strikes me as very pastoral almost, which is interesting because they generally tended to avoid that in Star Wars. It's generally been more urban and like about important political meetings and stuff. So the idea of there being some scenario that involves a stable boy is quite intriguing to me. Mm. Yeah, we will see. Right. Are you ready to move on? Yeah. Okay. Then the next bit is that British actor Aid Edmondson appears to be back on for episode 8 and basically A. Edmondson who's a British like, actor and comedian he was being interviewed by the BBC and they asked him is it true that you are going to be in Star Wars episode 8 it's very blunt straight out of the gate <laughs> and then he answered I wouldn't know if I am or not I can tell you I've signed a great big non-disclosure agreement for something I've no idea what it was ha 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 
Since that's a yes, then. Yeah, it basically is. Although I do wonder if the bit about I don't know whether I am or not that means he has a very small role and a role that could very well be cut. Yeah, I, I think, think that's that possible. is a plausible explanation for what he's saying. But it is it basically confirms to me that he has done filming for episode eight, a hundred percent. You would not say that if you had not done filming for episode eight. No, you just say no. It's not lying. Exactly. It's basically confirming it without confirming it. So, yeah, I, I like it when actors do this. It's cheeky and silly because there's no point keeping up the pretense because everyone knows that is a yes. Mm-hmm. But it's fun. How, do you know the actor from anything? Yes, I'm a big fan of the young ones in Bottom. I don't know. For non-Brits, they might not be well known, but they're pretty culturally iconic comedies in the UK. Is he one of the main guys in the young ones? So I've seen it. Yeah. I feel re- really weird because I've seen a Aid Edmondson in something, but it's in War and Peace. That's not what his usual thing is with comedies and that, but yeah, like, and that's interesting though because obviously we have very different perspectives on him because you've seen him as a comedic actor and you know what he can bring from that perspective, and I've seen him in what is basically a straight dramatic role because he plays Natasha's father, and he's a bit like bumbling and weak but it's not really a humor humorous what role if that makes sense yeah his comedy is very crude and very slapstick yes it's brilliant but if you're easily offended don't watch it <laughs> i reckon the language is pretty uh <laughs> but obviously they'll have to tone anything down if he has got like a funny role in star wars it's obviously going to be something that's suitable for children so <laughs> yeah it's not going to be the first r-rated star wars film just because <laughs> Edmondson's in it. um yeah, I think if he is going to be playing anything, it's most likely to be an Uncarplet type role. I don't necessarily mean his character will be anything like Uncarplet, but a character of that kind of size. You know what I mean? So yeah. they're not like a one scene character, but a, a small, smallish character who nonetheless leaves an impression and actually has something important to do. Because I don't think they'd bring him in just for like a cameo. Yeah, that's what I think too. Because he's he, cameos. I mean, I know Simon Pegg is more famous in um, the US, mm. but I'm guessing that most Americans haven't heard of Adrian Edmondson. No, so. it was really funny. I was watching Collider Jedi Council earlier, and they were all discussing the story, and it was obvious none of them had the foggiest idea who he was. Right, which is kind of a weird thing, right? You like just to, to discuss this, but have no idea what the actor is, who he is, or have seen any of his work. It'd be like, okay, great. It wouldn't mean anything to you. It was funny, actually, because Christian Harloff, bless him, he he theorised in his innocence that he thinks that Aid Edmondson will be playing a politician, which I think is like the least likely kind of role that Aid Edmondson plays. He could, but I don't know. (laughs) That would take it in a very different direction. (laughs) Who knows? Yeah, anything is possible. (laughs) Um, Right, are we done discussing Aid Edmondson? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is probably my favourite news story we've ever had on the podcast. It's pretty up there for me, yeah. Yeah, this is blast from the past. So we're going back a long way to basically the time when people were auditioning for Kylo Ren, because that happened. Uh, basically, to give people some context, they always knew they wanted Adam Driver, because Kathleen Kennedy recommended him and said this guy would be perfect, but they weren't sure he would take it. So just keep their minds open. They did audition a few other actors. And recently it came to light that one of those actors was Eddie Redmayne. 
and he spoke to Uprox about auditioning for Kylo Ren. And it's interesting and entertaining on various levels, so I will read. Okay. <clears throat> you mentioned auditioning for the same roles as Donald Gleason a lot. When you auditioned for Star Wars, did you audition for Hux? No, so I was going for, I think, for Adam Driver. They gave me like a Star Trek scene, or like something from Pride and Prejudice. It was one of those films. The films that are top secret, they don't give you the actual lines. So they give you a scene from Pride and Prejudice, but then they tell you your audition for the baddie. If you're me, you then put some ridiculous voice on. That was a really hilarious moment, because it was Nina Gold, who I have to thank a lot because she's cast me in several films. And she was just sitting there, and I was trying again and again. <laughs> Different versions of my... <laughs> Darth Vader breathing sound. Voice. And after like 10 shots, she's like, you got anything else? I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kirsty, while I calm down, could you give me your thoughts on this, please? Um, well, I'm going to go straight for the obvious. <laughs> I'm very intrigued by this reference to Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Because that is not something that people normally associate with Star Wars. Mm. Um, and, you know, they probably couldn't tell him... Ve- they couldn't give anything away about Kylo Ren, right? Because the role is super secret and they couldn't even use the actual scenes. Yes. Um, so he's trying to go for something very one-dimensional because <laughs> he's thinking of Star Wars villains like Darth Vader, but that's not that's not what they want from Kylo Ren. Yeah. It, um, it's hilarious how off-base he seems to have been. Yeah. Bless. Um, I, I come to this story from a very peculiar background in that I'm a massive Jupiter Ascended fan. And I think Eddie Redmayne gives a beautiful and masterful performance in that film. <laughs> and this is just such an amazing story to me. <laughs> because in Jupiter Ascendant, he plays the main villain. The main villain is completely different from Kylo Ren, other than having extreme emotional problems. <laughs> and, like, Balema Brassix, who's Eddie Redmayne's character, he's, like, Kylo Ren's emotional problems by a magnitude of 10,000. It's insane. And yeah, I, I just think of poor little Eddie doing this silly voice and the cast and director just staring at him like, seriously, you've got to be kidding me. I'd like mm. to think that um, <laughs> he he did um, <laughs> the audition, the Balama Brassics voice. So <laughs> like he's saying this line from Pride and Prejudice, like, you have bewitched me. <laughs> I'm dying to know which scene it was they gave him from Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, because I... I've I've talked before about Kylo Ren having like those Byronic qualities, mm. but he's in the Force Awakens. He's not a Mister Darcy. Like he's a he is the villain, and Mister Darcy's an antagonist. Yeah, but it's obviously a very different genre. Has influences of that, but it's not. Um. Yeah. No. So, no yeah. It's really intriguing. I, I can't think of any characters' lines they'd give him to try out other than Darcy? Like, who else would they give him? Mr. Collins? Mr. Bennett? Yeah, well, Darcy, because he does have shades of that, like I say, because he's not very self-aware at the beginning and comes across as very haughty and arrogant. Yes. So, yeah, I can see them going with that. I mean, it's not its not going to be Mr. Collins, is it? But <laughs> <laughs> not even Wickham, because Wickham's all about being charming. Yeah, it's, it's like the opposite for him. It's like he's he starts out charming and everyone loves him, and then he's revealed to be a complete, 
you know, asshole. Yeah. But Darcy's like the other way around. Yeah. No, so. it's very intriguing. Um, because presumably they gave the actors trying out for the part of kind of rent these bizarre audition pieces because they somehow hoped that they would get something out of the actors that they wanted in this character because they wouldn't completely arbitrarily give them lines from Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Uh, There had to have been some kind of logic behind that decision. I think it's really about having that range that you can have that vulnerability, but also a real anger and aggression. Yes. Which is what, what Adam Driver brings to the role himself. So. Yeah. No, definitely. It's they made a very good choice because as much as I, as much as I love Eddie Redmayne, I think he would have been very wrong for the part of Kylo Ren. It, it would have just been different, I guess. Yeah, like it it would have been completely different, and I, I suppose it's just a testament to Adam and what he did with that part that I just cannot imagine anyone else in that role now. Mm. He completely owned it, and I see that role as being so defined by the character's physicality and this like raw pulsating strength that the idea of someone like Eddie Redmayne trying to channel that is it does not compute in my brain. Yeah. But do you find it interesting that they were clearly going after actors of a certain caliber and level of experience? Yes. Um, and for newcomers in Star Wars, you know, people like John Boyega and Daisy Ridley, they're right at the beginning of their careers. So for Kylo, they obviously wanted something that was able to bring an awful lot of different aspects to a role which you know it's a very challenging role isn't it yeah no they clearly wanted an actor with some kind of heft which is really cool like and it's good and it shows how much importance they placed in the part because they auditioned very respectable and experienced actors who clearly had a lot to give because eddie redmayne like i'm obviously been teasing a bit but he's very very talented he's an exceptional actor he's an oscar winner yeah exactly he's like amazing he he can act the hell out of anything He, he probably could do broiling physicality better than I give him credit for. It's just I've never seen him in that kind of role. So it's difficult Mm. for me to envisage it. But he's probably more talented than I'm giving him credit for. And anyone who can give the performance that Eddie Redmayne gave in Jupiter Ascending is a pretty special actor. (laughs) To put it mildly, you still need to watch that. I know I do. So many things to watch. (laughs) Um, Right, have we said all we want to say about Eddie Redmayne? I think so. I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to have a whole list of actors that they were considering for the role because that does kind of give you all these different clues. Mm. Um, there have been rumours about others, but I guess we'll only find out if they come forward in interviews. I did read that Joel Kinnaman was yeah. auditioned as well. Um, I know he's a European. I can't remember which country. I think he's Swedish. Ah, sure. okay, yeah. I, I haven't seen him in anything, but I, I looked at pictures and I was like... He was, Boy, you're attractive. <laughs> yeah, he's very handsome. He was in House of Cards, and he was pretty good in that. Yeah. No, it just, again, shows the kind of calibre of actors they're going for. Mm-hmm. And I like how they keep on going back to that European stock stable of actor <laughs> talent. It's such a cliche. <laughs> yeah. Um. Right, so are we ready to move on? Yes. Okay, cool. This time we're doing it a bit differently. We normally have one big spotlight segment where we essentially dive into one topic and then spend about an hour talking about it. But this time we're going to have two smaller segments and that's probably a good thing. So we've spent a long time talking about the news. Um, (laughs) And this time we are going to start off our first mini segment with a talk on the developing discourse in fandom. 
And this basically came about because the J.J. Abrams audio commentary was released. And I like, I think Kirsty would agree. We've essentially seen these quite significant changes in the tone of the discussion online and the kinds of things that people are saying. And just how it's affecting people's perceptions of The Force Awakens and so on and so forth. Um, I was wondering, could you give a bit of background, Kirsty, to try and yeah. set a scene for people? I mean, if, if people haven't yet um, listened to the commentary themselves or read it, you can go back to the episode before this one where we really kind of dove into it in pretty substantive detail. Um, but basically, it um, seemed to validate certain readings of the movie, and those readings have, since December, been less popular than others. Mm. Um, it seems to have opened up um, um, more of the discussion that people are kind of being a bit more open-minded as to alternative theories where previously they were shut down. Yeah, I, I, like I think that's a, a good, like, broad way of putting it. One of the things I found with much of the discourse around Force Awakens since it came out is that a lot of the discussion has focused on how this movie is retrograde and derivative yes. of what has come before. So people obsess over how it's lazy and how it copies from Star Wars precedent. And essentially, there have been more subversive interpretations of the film that highlight the new aspects and the new kind of character dynamics. So between Kyle and Ray, for example. And they have seen those as very central to The Force Awakens and understanding that movie and perceiving it as its own beast and something that is not completely beholden to the past. And that line of thought has alternately been suppressed, ridiculed, mocked. It is it's ridiculous. There's been all kinds of nonsense going on, essentially shouting people down because they perceive these characters' relationship as integral to the new trilogy. And now J.J. Abrams has come out and basically said, yes, this is a really important relationship. And we made all these directorial decisions behind the scenes to emphasize how important this is. And you can't escape that reading of the film anymore because mm. we literally have it from the director's mouth. I feel for J.J. in a way because making this movie, it was almost like they had an obligation to really pay homage to the original trilogy and A New Hope specifically. Yeah. So we kind of had this quite rigid framework that he then had to manage to somehow set the foundation for a new story in it, but subtly. Yes. So it's been interesting to me that the, the people who seem to have been most vocally critical of the fact that it's, oh, it's just the same, mm. have also been resistant to these theories that say, actually, there's something more going on here and it's really intriguing and exciting. Yes. Um, so, you know, you and I are obviously, we're proponents of that. We, we've seen it. We've talked about it a lot. We've talked about it in our podcasts mm. and our essays. And um, it's just been very discouraging, really, to be laughed at and told that we're imagining things. And that's why we were so excited when the commentary came out. Not because JJ was telling us anything we didn't already know, because it was something that we'd seen. Yeah. But that it was finally, we can point to something that the actual creators you know, they've said that this was intentional. Yeah. We're not we're not imagining things. We're not crazy fangirls. Yeah, no, exactly. It's basically, what I, and I'm sure you, have seen over the past month since The Force Awakens came out has been what is essentially gaslighting. Yeah. People, people basically being treated like they're mad women 
and like they're projecting their hysterical fantasies onto this poor, innocent, helpless movie that is victim to their bizarre interpretations of things and just being completely devalued and had their contributions treated as if they're worthless and completely irrelevant to the discussion at hand. And yeah, that's what makes these comments so important and emboldening to us because they're like, no, hang on. You are thinking along the right lines. You were right to notice these things. You were right to notice that Kylo's behavior concerning Ray is really weird. You're meant to question why he does behaves as he does around this girl. That is part of the movie, part of the directorial intent. And there's just something so gratifying about that because it just feels like vindication at this point. Because when you've been belittled and banned from discussions in certain parts of the internet, Mm. then you just almost feel disheartened and you do start to wonder, like, how I imagined it? I never genuinely believed that, but it does really make you question the validity when you're surrounded by this enormous community of people telling you that no, you're wrong and yeah so it's really nice to get that support and that backup from powers that be yeah i struggle to talk about it um because it's, it's obviously something that's been going on for a long time like since we joined the fandom in earnest yes um and the goalposts have been moving a lot with the discussion yeah that's sure what's, that's what's very frustrating for me because we were saying from the beginning and, you know, people that we know and think similarly were saying that Kylo Ren and Rey are the central dynamic of the story. Yes. And you can see that in the film and it's not even subtle. But, you know, a lot of it was, no, it's about Rey and Finn. And then we had to talk about, well, yes, they are the protagonists, but because they're both protagonists, they're going to be on separate strands of the journey. They'll come together again. That's not like they'll never see each other again or that their relationship with each other isn't important but it was almost I don't know a lot of us um have you know backgrounds in writing and storytelling and it was it felt like um people were being quite defensive of us of when we were talking about things from a storytelling perspective not mm. just an in-universe one that we were somehow being condescending or talking down to people yeah or that we just didn't understand Star Wars and somehow that's a genre unto itself and therefore wasn't bound by, you know, almost universal narrative rules and structures and motifs. Mm-hmm. Because it's not. Like we've said before, Star Wars has these components from fairy tales, westerns, um, mythology. Mm. I think all of this is shaped by the fact that for the longest time in Star Wars internet fandom, it has been quite steady in terms of the kind of community you're dealing with and the kind of the nature of the discussions people are having and people are interested in having. And The Force Awakens essentially turned that on its head, you know, because it and, brought and in this whole Luke, new wave of fans. Lucasfilm wanted that, yeah, right? exactly. They've That's... specifically said they also wanted to court female fans. Yeah. Not that it's not for men anymore, That's yeah. or, or boys. That's not the issue, but they want to bring more people into it who might not have already been interested in Star Wars or not to the same degree. Yeah, exactly. You have, basically, with The Force Awakens, you have this new wave of people coming into these movies and naturally they bring their own ways of seeing these movies and interpreting these movies. And what I've seen is because those ways of interpreting these movies are different to the kind of interpretations that have predominated for a long time in discussions about Star Wars, 
they are treated like alien and other and they're just rejected out of hand as if they're irrelevant is like you don't have enough street cred to be in stars fandom you don't know what you're talking about there is that kind of vibe to it almost mm. and it, it just really turns me off it's not the way the discussion should be happening the discussion should be about welcoming voices and thinking about, oh actually that's pretty cool that's pretty interesting like it's nice to get this fresh perspective on things but it's like people do not want a fresh perspective that instead they want to like curl in on themselves and yeah. even though they say oh i want souls to be new and fresh and daring again when there are actually new and fresh and daring elements they hate it they don't like it they violently resist it <laughs> and yeah yeah it's always like there's hypocrisy at the heart of it in certain circles i definitely don't think all established fandom is like this you can have very intelligent and worthwhile discussions on corners of the internet with people who have been star wars fans for a long time they're still open-minded and are still interested in new voices and new takes on things but unfortunately in my experience that has been relatively rare the most productive and enthusiastic and encouraging discussions i've had have often been with other fans who are in the same boat they're newer fans and they they do See, come to it from a similar position to what I do, which I really like. It's really cool to discuss these movies with people who have like similar feelings and similar passions and similar ways of seeing it. But at the same time, I, I also think it's really sad that there are like these enclaves so that the people who already have the same positions on things, they're talking to each other and they're debating with each other. And there's not like much cross-pollination between the different sectors and those different theories and outlooks on the films yeah and that frustrates me so i love a healthy debate i love discussion but because people are so resistant to the like perspective that we have on these films for example like with that central rain kylo dynamic that we think is so important like because people refuse to see that and even act like it's abhorrent that you're even dis- suggesting that that might be a thing you can't have those discussions that is like there's just this cons- either conspiracy of silence or outright censorship, and it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's a shame, and it's gone on for longer than I thought it would. It actually got a lot worse mm. um, over time because as things were coming out, like Bloodline, that threatened the idea of Ray being a Skywalker and stuff like that, and you know, the timeline just didn't work out for some of the theories. Mm. Um, people almost retreated rather than taking on this new information and adapting their theories or looking at ones that maybe fit it a bit better. Yeah. Um, people started questioning whether Bloodline was canon <laughs> or attacking Claudia Gray. And so, you know, and that just seems to me really against the spirit of what this should be. It should be fun mm. and people should be okay with not knowing the answers because that's why those books exist. They come out and then you go, oh, I didn't know that before. That maybe adjusts my understanding of the film that I thought I'd I'd saw and understood yeah so and I'm I'm not saying that we're gonna get everything right Mm. like that's not what we're saying um and when we feel validated by JJ's commentary on The Force Awakens that's not us saying oh that means we're gonna get everything right for eight and nine yeah it's just that we thought we saw certain things in The Force Awakens and that's been backed up Mm. doesn't mean that we can predict where the story's gonna go well we can predict but we don't know yeah and that's okay like I feel like it's become very important for fans to be right yes. at all costs. 
Um, and it's just okay to say that you don't know. I think it's this idea that, like you say, it's not about us being right. I, I don't want people to listen to this and think that we're coming to this from a position of superiority. Like, oh, we have, we have our position completely backed up by the director of the movie. We're like uh, completely on the way to canon status. La, la, la. Like, that's not how, how I think about this. It's more just the case that when you've had your views treated as so insignificant and irrelevant for so long and excluded from the mainstream discussion it's just so important to actually have support and feel like no we do deserve to be in this discussion we do have worthwhile things to say that are supported by the film because a lot of the observations we've made of the interactions between Ray and Kylo they are founded in the film you know, it's not like we are plucking these things out of thin air or just suggesting on the basis of nothing what will happen in the future films. We're theorising on the basis of what is in The Force Awakens. So we've always seen those things, but other people have either denied those things are there or have suggested that they're projections. And yeah. it's just so incredibly frustrating. Well, if we're talking about how the conversation has changed very recently, it's made me realise that a lot of people did see it. Yes. They just wanted to pretend they didn't for some reason. Yeah. Um, it was almost like if we don't acknowledge it, it'll, it'll go away. It won't be a part of the future story, which is, you know, that's the idea of somehow advocating for the storytellers to not know what they're doing, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Like you want it to all fit together. You want the characters to develop in a way that makes sense. One would hope. <laughs> um. So yeah, like looking at the interactions between Rhea and Kylo and they always struck me as something that is not familial, mm. doesn't suggest that these two are related by blood. Through the legs pose. Through the legs pose. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, you, you don't even have to look at Marvel. You can look at the actual <laughs> movie, the subtext, the ambiguous dialogue that can mean one thing to adults and one thing to children. Yes, exactly. That I, the competent storytellers would not do that for cousins or siblings. Mm. This isn't the original trilogy. They're not going to make those mistakes again. Yeah. And I think some people were counting on those mistakes being made again. And I just don't understand that. Yeah, I, I have actually seen people suggest that the like, sexually charged subtext to the interactions between Ray and Kylo. I've seen people suggest that it's the filmmakers deliberately trying to emulate Luke and Leia. I have literally seen people make that argument. And that just baffles me. It's like... Of all the things they would want to pay homage to in the original trilogy, I think accidental and incestuous attraction is not one of them. The thing is, Luke and Leia, yes, they kissed, but they didn't have this um, the same kind of sexual undertones. <laughs> yes. They just didn't. Um, so when you have Kylo Ren say to Rey, you know I can take whatever I want. Mm. I don't think he's intentionally, I don't think he understands, this is just my interpretation, but I don't think he understands it when he's saying that as something that can be interpreted as sexual, but yeah. it's subtext and the adult audience is supposed to pick up on it. Yes. And I've seen people recently, because of the commentary maybe, they'll acknowledge that and say, oh yeah, everyone in the audience cringed and said, ew, mm. when that happened. And yet they're still advocating for Rey to be a Skywalker because the hero of Star Wars always has to be a Skywalker. Mm. So... I just can't work out the psychology of that. I think it probably feeds into this, um, because obviously people, for understandable reasons, they have serious problems with Kylo Ren because he killed Han Solo. So I think it's easier for people to accept that he will just be made to seem even more gross and reprehensible by 
having these evil designs on his cousin, sister, whatever, like that is more palatable to these people than the idea of that same character being redeemed and potentially having a romantic relationship with the heroine. I do think a lot of this feeds into people's very visceral reactions to Kylo Ren himself. Yeah, well, yeah, we've seen that a lot in the idea that, no, he can't be redeemed because he killed Han. Mm. Because the idea of him staying as a one-dimensional, or becoming a one-dimensional villain, because he's not that at the moment, is somehow like the audience having revenge on him for killing their childhood hero. Mm. But if you want him to feel bad, redemption is the way to go because that's him realizing what he's done. Yes. How he's hurt people. You know, redemption isn't about everyone magically forgiving him and pretending it didn't happen. It's a, it's the opposite. It's him realizing the magnitude of his crimes. Yes. And it's no guarantee that, you know, that he would fall in love with Ray and then she would fall in, fall in love back. Like that's not necessarily how it's going to go. They could easily have something one-sided, mm. but the beginnings of it, is in the Force Awakens, like it's in there that he he has some level of attraction to her or intrigue or fascination. Mm. Yeah, I don't know why people have ignored it for so long. Yeah, but it's nice to see things become more open, and it's also worth mentioning that there's a really fantastic um, post on Reddit by Across the Grey, which essentially it tackles this like conspiracy of silence and ridicule concerning like Rain Kylo, Raylo. And it's re- a really great post. I'll link to it. And it just sets out how bullshit it's all been, basically. The fact that this whole interpretation of the film and what is basically one of the key relationships at the heart of it has been utterly suppressed just because some people find it uncomfortable. And it's basically said how wrong that's been and how stifling that's been. And... Fingers crossed, we should have the author of said post on podcast next week, which would be very exciting. Yay! Yay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we should hopefully have a very dis- interesting discussion further in upon this. I would certainly look forward to that very much. Um, is there anything else you want to say about this discourse and fandom? Um, I don't think so. Just that to end on a more optimistic note, that it does seem to be changing for the better. Yeah. Um, certain places still have you know, kind of a restriction on the discussion. <laughs> yes. But you can tell that because people are becoming increasingly curious and possibly receptive to the idea. Yeah. Um, because if Ray isn't a Skywalker, that does have implications for their dynamic going forward. Yes. No, definitely. There has to be something linking these characters. And if it's not blood, what is it? So <laughs> are we ready to move on? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, then the next mini segment is going to be about Letter Never Sent. And to give some background, Letter Never Sent is a Soviet film from 1959, directed by Mikhail Kalatozov. And I'm very sorry for horribly butchering his name, because I'm sure I have. And it has the following plot summary, which is... A team of four searches for diamonds in the central Siberian plateau. Leader Sabanin, guide Sergei, and geologists Andrei and Tanya seek the vein of stones that scientists have determined must exist, eager both to secure personal glory and also to end Soviet dependence on foreign diamonds. The team pursues their task persistently, methodically, and relentlessly. Their work pays off. They find the diamonds, but before they can reach the extraction point, a forest fire drives them further into the wilderness. That's more of the premise than the full plot synopsis. 
probably best to avoid spoilers. Um, but the reason I'm bringing up this seemingly completely irrelevant film is because Ryan Johnson, the director of Episode 8, has cited it as one of the influences on his film. So, Kirsty, what are your thoughts on Let Enough Send? Well, um, Ryan didn't say how it's going to influence things, so obviously that would be a huge spoiler. Um, but it does seem like it could link to Luke and Ray's side of the plot because they're very much in that natural landscape on Act 2. Yes, and this is actually a very good point to highlight the fact that this discussion will involve spoilers. So please skip ahead if you do not want to be spoiled because spoilers will enter this discussion because of the nature of it. Yeah, so if we're talking spoilers, we also know that Kylo Ren is going to be on Act 2. Yes. Um, joining them, because obviously at the end of The Force Awakens, we know that they were already there, um, but the, he'll, he'll be joining them. And that does seem to correspond with some of the storytelling that goes on in this film. Yeah. Um, not sure how literally it will play out again, but there are themes that um, kind of seem to fit with the romanticism of act two like that it's you know this magical island that's probably very strong in the force and has these mystical qualities and um there's that sense of pathetic fallacy um that's present in the letter letter never sent the idea of the natural environment reflecting what's going on with the characters Mm. which i find really interesting and i'm hoping that will play into episode eight in some form yes no definitely those are all really good observations um I think the most striking reason to believe that Letter Never Sent is going to influence the whole Ray, Luke, Kylo, Fred of the plot is mainly because of the geographical locations we're talking about. So the whole point of Letter Never Sent is that this team of geologists, they're completely isolated. They are utterly detached from the rest of humanity. And that leaves them extremely vulnerable and exposed to the elements and they're completely at the mercy of Mother Nature. And obviously on Act 2, you have, again, a very small group of people isolated on a very lonely and barren environment. And they are cut off from civilization. And they are in this very intense and concentrated situation with each other. And in Lesson of Ascent, it's perhaps most interesting in the first half, which is when you have all these tensions within the group. Because you have this situation where Tanya and Andre, who are the geologists, they are lovers. But Sergei, who's their guide, he has an unrequited love for Tanya, essentially. And so this situation where it's a kind of love triangle, it creates all these like tensions and struggles and like intense emotional situations. And not necessarily saying they're going to repeat that beat for beat in episode eight, because for a start, there's only three people on on act two of significance, unless someone's hiding or one of the Knights of Ren magically becomes important. Um, And I really don't see Luke being the third will (laughs) in a love triangle situation, because that'd be wrong on so very many levels. Um, although I believe it's a ship, actually, I, I, I because people Rook. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds so bad. That sounds like a genre of music or something. Um, 
So I basically the point I'm trying to make is that I can see all these broiling emotions and all these like intense relationships between the characters. I can see that coming into play in episode eight. How yeah. You can see it really play across the characters' faces as well. There's all these long, lingering looks, and it's kind of awkward and heavy with tension. Yes. Um, and I do think Sergei kind of has some qualities that kind of could be considered like Kylo. Yeah. In terms of quite primal and passionate. Yeah. Um, and like heavy with his physicality. Yeah. There's real emphasis on how physical that character is. There's um, a very crucial scene where Sergei and Tanya, they're both working in a pit and Sergei is, <laughs> is essentially driving this pick into the ground and he's driving it into the ground over and over and over again. And it's mm-hmm. almost like quite an erotic movement because of the repetition. And Tanya's in there as well. And then you begin to focus on like the sweaty body of Sergei as he does this very heavy physical work and then you see him staring at her and then she notices and stares back and it becomes very tense and very awkward and you're not sure what's going to happen like there's clearly all these strong emotions but it's like is he going to kiss her is she going to kiss him back and it raises all those questions that's like a pride and prejudice moment yeah no exactly <laughs> maybe maybe this similar scene is what they had Eddie Runway try out unfortunately <laughs> I don't ever know yeah, and then just before anything physical happens, like Tanya finds like a diamond. The whole idea is that there's this unrequited love that is never fulfilled and it's a missed opportunity and there's tragedy in that. But then the mission to save the Soviet motherland is fulfilled and they succeed and all is prosperous and good in terms of the bigger picture. So I don't think Ryan Johnson would be taking the political ideological stance <laughs> of less than a cent into <laughs> episode eight. Um, but I do see him borrowing from those characters' relationships because I think there's lots of fertile ground there that you could apply. Yeah, I think so. And like, if you look at the Sergei and Tanya dynamic, it because she has this like sense of restraint and um, what she considers right and wrong and her sense of loyalties to people. Yes. Um, it is an unrequited love on Sergei's part and they make that quite clear but there's also she's intrigued by him somehow yeah Um, because he is very different to the person that she is in love with yes so it's this idea that Sergei could be a kind of animus figure because he's he's their guide um, but also has this strong physicality yes so it's it's a very interesting film. People should watch it. Yeah, no, it is. It's really good. And it's absolutely stunning on a visual level because it's also important to say that a big part of the inspiration Ryan Johnson is probably drawing from is visual. So yeah. I'm sure there's going to be many beautiful shots of Ireland <laughs> that resemble shots in Letter Never Sent. And that is a great, great thing because it's just yeah. stunning. I, I watched it and I could not believe it was made in the 1950s, let alone in Russia. It was amazing. Yeah, it is very impressive. And um, Ryan Johnson was um, putting photos up on Instagram um, during filming. And there were some there that had kind of a Letter Never Sent vibe. Mm. Um, like he was using black and white, which probably helped. <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, shots of people in you know this very dramatic landscapes. Yes. And um, kind of like silhouettes against the ocean and um, mountains and things like that. Um, so... 
there were there are some very iconic shots in Let's Never Send of them kind of like trekking through the wilderness and you can just see their silhouettes and shadows and stuff like that. Yes. So I I wonder if parts of that are gonna play into it. Yeah. No, definitely. And is I think you make a really good point about Tanya being shown to be so devoted to her duty and like the success of the mission. Because Sergey, like with all this emotion and passion for Tanya, like that is essentially shown to be like foolish passion and it results in nothing productive. And <laughs> spoiler for Let's Never Sense, 50 year old film, sorry. <laughs> um, and basically, it literally leads to his death because in this moment of like bravado and heroism, which is motivated by his love for Tanya, he essentially charges out into the river to try and push a boat of supplies towards them. Like, and he gives his own life to do that because he wants to save Tanya because he loves her that intensely. And then he dies. (laughs) It's Mm. basically like nature is punishing him for the extent of his passion and like the foolishness and the hopelessness of that passion which is really interesting because it's almost like a biblical idea, you know, like the elements punishing humans for their vanity and their foolish choices and their lusts and stuff. Yeah. That element of sacrifice is very interesting because there are other films that Ryan Johnson's mentioned that kind of have that theme in different ways. Yes. It's executed differently, but we'll probably talk about them in the future as well. Yeah. No, he had a really interesting list. I've only seen two of the films on it. Um, so I picked the ones that were the most weird. <laughs> really struck me as the most weird. The Russian one and the Japanese one. And they're both really good. Ryan Johnson has very good taste. So I am looking forward to watching the others as well. But yeah, it's a really interesting film to name check because no one else would have name checked this film. And I admire Ryan for looking in these really weird and unusual places. like Because there's all kinds of obvious things you can name check as inspirations when you're making a Star Wars film. So kudos to him for thinking outside the box and bringing these fresh visual and potentially thematic influences in Star Wars, because I think that's a great way to freshen up. Yeah, it makes it clear that Star Wars isn't only inspired by Star Wars. Yeah. Or Flash Gordon or whatever the obvious things that people think of, like you say, that um, they're still creating a piece of art that will draw upon loads of different elements of inspiration. Yeah. Um, The other thing that we should probably mention is the idea of this film being one of the few that he mentioned um, that has a female lead character. Yes. No, which is really important. Um, I actually, on Twitter, I wrote to Rain Roberts, who's a member of the Lucasfilm Story Group, about this. I, I essentially asked what films with female leads did you look at when you were looking for inspiration for episode eight? And she said that Letter of Scent was the highlight in that regard. And that's interesting because I might be reading too much into it, but it does imply that if any of the female characters in the films they watched had an impact on Ray, then it would have been Tanya in Letter of Scent because mm. she's the main one, potentially like the only female protagonist in any of the films. And that's interesting because of... Tanya's conflict in Lesson of Ascent essentially being the tension between like duty to Andre and the mission and the Soviet motherland and then this more intense and dangerous relationship with Sergei and all the like excitement and passion that that promises. In the end, Tanya makes 
like the logical and noble choice because she is always loyal to Andre, always loyal to the mission. But it's interesting that the character has that choice to make because I think we might see Ray being given a similar choice. So between like the overarching mission of the resistance and the overarching mission to bring the Jedi back and to train herself and to fulfill her destiny and then her more selfish desires, like potentially to get her family back and potentially if like Kylo can entice her to the dark side, like going down that path. So I think we might see like a torn character who's like going through these extreme emotional trials which is yeah. what Tanya does. And that fits with other things we've heard in terms of Daisy's interviews that we've discussed before, her saying that Ray can have an emotional injury, that sort of thing. So I can't wait. <laughs> it's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you know, I love Ray in The Force Awakens, but she is kind of swept along with things as they happen. Yes. Whereas if they really do give her, you know, a difficult choice to make, in this one, it's, you'll feel like you'll learn a lot more about her character and where she's coming from and what she cares about. Yeah. It's really going to put it to the test because we know now that she cares about her family. That's been um, her main motivation for staying on Jakku. But what happens now? She's left now. Mm. Is she still going to care about that just as much or are there going to be other things that come into play? Yeah, no, exactly. I think we're going to have to see her make decisions and really like determine what's important to her. And that's going to be really interesting because, as you say, I think that's going to give us a better sense of the kind of person she is Mm -hmm. and what her values are. And I think that will probably make her a more rounded character. It will probably make her more challenging and more difficult to like for some people. But I think that's important because you can't have a lead character who everyone loves. Like, there has to be some kind of tension and some kind of sense of things going wrong and Ray being mistaken and misled because she can't always be right. Yeah, I think they did a fantastic job so far setting her up to be the hero. Everyone absolutely adores her. Yes. That's great. Um, but to be interesting and, you know, to truly develop, um, she does need to be tested in some way and to sometimes not make the right decision or maybe she makes the right decision, but it doesn't seem like it at the time. And Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting, and I think there's going to be lots of cool tensions in the air, shall I say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, are we ready to move on from the letter never said? Yes, let's get to questions. Okay, cool. Right, so the first two we have are thankfully quite short. (laughs) So the first question is from an anonymous user on Tumblr. Question. Do you think Hux is going to be killed off in episode 8? I saw some people talking about it, and I hope not. Kirsty, what do you think? Um, I think it's possible. Mm. I hope they don't, because I think he's great in that role. Yes. I love Donald Gleeson, but um, I think it's possible because he's pretty one-dimensional. <laughs> you know, like, I, and they're not going to be able to spend an awful lot of time developing his character. There's so much other stuff going on. They're introducing new characters. and You mean it's not going to clearly... be like the p- passion and struggle of Armitage Hux? We might get that in a book one day, <laughs> and I would definitely read it. Um, Same. But he's set up to be kind of this one-dimensional villain, isn't he? Yeah. He, he... So he could be killed as part, you know, to, to fulfill someone else's arc. I hope Kylo kills him. <laughs> I think this is really bad. I really like Donal. And I do like the character, actually. I, I do find him a really fun, 
and like even quite interesting character like on a thematic level because of how he contrasts with Kylo I think they make good foils to each other um and yeah Donal's really entertaining <laughs> um but yeah I think his best purpose like in terms of an ending for that character is going to be to be killed by Kylo in some capacity so that would not really be added to one of Ky- Kylo's lists of crimes you know yeah that's like, the thing he's, like he's, he's so clearly a villain that it's not like oh my god i can't believe kylo killed him you know <laughs> he's gone too far <laughs> this is the irredeemable act <laughs> screw hard he killed Hux. <laughs> yeah yeah i could see that as a possibility i haven't really given it much thought um it sounds like this person's quite attached to Hux. yeah it like, does um like i say i i really like the character i i think he's certain to die before the new trilogy is out. If he doesn't die in eight, I'd eat my hat if he doesn't die in nine. Yeah. I I think he just has to die for the nature of that kind of character because he's so formative and important to the First Order. And presumably the First Order, they are going to be put down by the end of nine. I'd be surprised if not. It'd actually be quite cha- refreshing if not because it would create lots of storytelling potential for the sequel, to- sequel trilogy, which is surely inevitable. Um, but yeah, I think all bets are on Hux being dead by the time episode 9 happens. But yeah, I'd like to see him survive till then. So I hope he lives through episode 8. But we will see. Um, I found that I saw this really interesting tweet from Pablo where Pablo basically indicated that Hux, when he rescued Kylo from Starkiller Base, this was imploding. He could have used Bacta on Kylo's face so that Kylo wouldn't scar. But because Hux is a prick, he didn't yeah <laughs> so he essentially let kylo's face deliberately scar i don't blame hooks for that because it's kind of all kylo's fault yeah no i i think that's very reasonable but i think that's probably going to be another thing that makes it very personal for kylo so i think he's probably going to really want hux dead if he did yeah. that to him like because that would have just been malice on hux's part well raise the one who actually scarred him yeah it's true but i can see kylo deflecting a lot of the blame maybe yeah, <laughs> be interesting. Um, right, we're ready to move on. Yeah. Okay, cool. We have another anonymous message on Tumblr, and this one is actually more of a technical question. Um, so <laughs> probably good to have a frank discussion. Um, this one is: Are you guys only posting Scavengers Horde on YouTube? It'd be really great if you could submit your podcast to iTunes so everyone can listen in their podcast apps. I really want to listen to the show, but I can't until I get in in my RSS feed. Just something to consider. Thanks. Bye. Oh, they can't listen to the show. I know. They, they won't be able to hear our response. <laughs> I didn't think this through very well tonight. <laughs> um, I will have to type a response as well. Um, bless you for a start. Thank you for your enthusiasm. That's really sweet and nice. Um, iTunes is definitely something I'm going to try and work on when I can get my ass in gear and find time to do it. Um, is complicated because essentially finding hosting for audio files online it is either expensive or deeply inefficient or filled with advertisements <laughs> so it's essentially going to be a process where we have to decide which is the least evil of the options available to us yeah we'll have to do some research but we definitely do want to get on iTunes because I've had a few people asking as well yeah. I know it's more convenient for most people yeah. than YouTube yeah, obviously I, it is an audio-only podcast, so it's not like there's a visual element for people to enjoy, apart from Nemling's beautiful art, 
which is lovely, but even I wouldn't sit down and stare at it for two hours. <laughs> um, yeah, you just don't do that. Um, so yeah, rest assured it's something we're working on and it will happen sooner or later. Um, it just, hopefully the side of Christmas, let's be optimistic. Touch. Yeah. So fingers crossed. <laughs> um, right. And then our final question is, a biggie and I'm really hoping you can help me out here Kirsty. oh god I, I don't I'm not even sure I had a look through it and I was like I don't know if I feel confident enough to ask that we, but... we'll muddle through we're gonna try bless you it was such a good question I had to include it so this is from aimless dreamer who's one of our youtube commentators and she said I do have a question for you guys and it has to do with the novel lost stars as many know lost stars is at its core the original trilogy from the empire's point of view after reading, I rewatched the prequels and the Clone Wars, and from what I understand, the Empire was born from the declining Republic, and thus technically won the war, even though the whole thing was part of one scheme. However, in Lost Stars, it appears that Imperial history books favour the Separatists. This confuses me, because if history is written to be biased against the Republic, it would also be, by default, biased against Palpatine, the Emperor they're all supposed to revere. It seems highly unlikely for people to not know that the Emperor and former Chancellor are one and the same, since both are highly public positions. So I guess my question is this. What is the purpose or advantage of portraying or imperial history from the view of the Separatists? So, um, I might get all this completely wrong, but I'm not actually sure that people do know that Palpatine and the Chancellor and, and the Emperor are the same. Do you? Is that obvious? I, 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 I know it's obvious to us, but um, you mean, I don't you know. Mean, because... From an in-universe perspective. Yeah, because Padme knows, but then dies, and, and Obi-Wan goes into hiding. So I, I do, think do it, normal people know? I think, I think they have to. In Revenge of the Sith, like it's literally Chancellor Palpatine who comes up onto the podium and says that he's going to accept all the emergency powers and become Emperor. Is that right, or am I getting confused? Um... I don't know if that's them explicitly saying that it's going to be the Empire. I don't know. I'm it's... probably going to get everything wrong here. <laughs> We're so sorry. Um, we are going to try and muddle through this. Um... My guess is that Palpatine really wanted to show that the Republic itself was flawed mm. because then he could justify the Empire, right? Like, Yes. He didn't want the, the Republic to come across as something that worked. Yeah. Like, it was obviously vested interest to show that as being a corrupt and declining force because he needed to portray it as something that had to be abolished in order for the glorious empire to come along and do a fantastic job um right so maybe the you know siding with the separatists in the history books kind of justifies that to people yes like that that's the only logic for that that i can see like because like separatists so the politics in the prequels they confuse me so much the separatists they're kind they're kind of like palpatine's allies aren't they but yeah like in the end he, he betrays yeah. them He's playing the long game, so he wants to kind of have these different factions, but I think, and no one else seems to understand what he's doing. It's all understand. I oh, okay, I'm going to be honest. Of the prequels, I kind of tune out of all that stuff. Mm. I'm mostly interested in um, Anakin and Obi Wan's relationship and Anakin and Padme. Yeah, so I definitely latch onto that much more readily than I latch onto the politics. And I know that it was kind of a widespread opinion that most people didn't love the politics emphasis yeah. in the prequels. 
yeah. But it's important from a storytelling perspective because you need to know how the Empire came about. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, and it is really interesting. And I admire George Lucas for making it so complicated because it is more real that way. It's a pain in the ass to follow and understand from a film goer's point of view. But I do still think it's worthwhile and interesting. Um, I, I, I've just been thinking about this, and I'm certain that the galaxy does know that the Chancellor is also the Emperor. I think what is secret is that the Emperor is this dark side force user. Yeah, that makes more sense. Like that, yeah. They just didn't. They didn't know that he was a Sith Lord, and even though Anakin finds out, like no one else knows. Mm. It's not. It's not like a. It's like you know, Kylo Ren isn't known to be Kylo Ren. People think that he's still Ben Solo, and he's off with Luke. So, yes, little did they know. <laughs> yeah, normal people just aren't going to have access to that information. It's going to be kept on the down low. Mm. I mean, with Bloodline, people didn't even know that Vader was Anakin. Yeah, so. and, and like Ray's really pretty ignorant as well. Like she's like Luke Skywalker. I thought he was a myth. <laughs> yeah. Which is realistic, you know, because all this stuff's going on, but the ordinary people are just trying to get on with their lives. Yeah. Yeah, the Emperor, as part of the Empire, he's obviously shrouded in mystery. Like, even us as the viewers, we don't know much about him. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of untouchable in that respect. Yeah, no, and I think a big part of the Emperor's deal for becoming Emperor in the first place is... Oh, look at what the evil Jedi did to me. Oh, I'm so sad. Yeah, I think, yeah, it makes sense for them to not show the Republic as something that was a success. And it wasn't, so it's not like that's lying, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't all bad. (laughs) (laughs) It was in his interest to portray it as something that needed overhauling. Yeah. No, exactly. And it is interesting because Kylo is clearly similarly disillusioned with the New Republic, which is presumably part of the reason why he thinks Snoke and the First Order are so awesome. Yeah. And, you know, Leia, she's obviously not in the exact same mould as him, but she has her frustrations with the New Republic and Mm. starts the resistance. So I I do think there are going to be interesting parallels between Leia and her son. Yeah. And Leia and her mum, too. Yes. Which I like. So, yeah. so I do like this idea that she's her mother's daughter. So again, going back to that whole thing with mothers not being important enough, it is cool that they're showing Leia being the politician because that's what her mum was. And that did, idea did very much become come from George Lucas when he came up with Padme, which I appreciate. Yeah. Right, so are we done, do we think? I think so. Unless there's anything else we need to... I think we've covered everything. That. And I think we should have a pretty neat and snappy episode today by our standards <laughs> which is good cool um, yeah you never know before we know it, it might actually be down to one and a half hours that magical oh. dream goal uh, <laughs> right uh, I am Rachel I am Star Wars Nonsense uh, on Tumblr and I am Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress and Kirsty I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter if you want to follow us yes Twitter is the place to find us and the place to be right um we hope everyone has a great week in star wars 2 and you'll hear us again next week bye bye